0: Thank you for listening. Thank you for you listening, listening to the Outstanding Ohioan Show. You for the Outstanding Ohio Show. Hosted by my daddy. Thank, by you my daddy. My daddy. Thank you, Ryan and Sawyer, for that great introduction. Indeed, this is the Outstanding Ohioan show. I believe Ohio and the people of Ohio have an incredible, wide-ranging and proud impact that needs to be shared with the world. And it's always been that way throughout the history of the United States. The job of the Outstanding Ohioans podcast is to share these remarkable success stories with an intelligent and curious audience. The Outstanding Ohioans podcast connects to highly accomplished people in all walks of life and shares their secrets to success. And today we've got another great success story to share with you. Thank you for listening. And please leave your comments on iTunes, Stitcher, or the blog post. Thank you for listening. Have a great day. Hello, thank you for tuning in to the Outstanding Ohioans podcast. My name is Ron Silico, and this is episode 41 in our first of 2016. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with Anastasia Congdon and Margaret Lewis, who are the co-founders of Kokosing Valley School, which is a Sudbury school located in Gambier, Ohio, which is in Knox County. Anastasia, Margaret, welcome. Thanks, Ron. Thank you. So many questions, and there's probably many people in the audience that don't know what a Sudbury school is, and, and I hope we can explore that shortly. But for the audience, can you give, could each of you give your background on where you grew up, who, you were, who were your role models in life, your interests and in professional career, and how you got to where you're at today?
1: Sure. <laughs> those, those are long
0: stories.
1: But. <laughs> <laughs> this is Anastasia. Um, I uh, grew up um, sort of all over. My father was in the Foreign Service. Um, I studied um, initially filmmaking and then um, moved into studying architecture and practice architecture for a number of years. Um, and still practice it a little. I have also taught architecture at um, a number of universities. Um, And the teaching of architecture was always incredibly um, exciting for me because it was very much about being uh, around younger people who were so full of creativity and watching them explore their creativity and their work without um, uh, imposing a lot of, of... sort of content on them, really watching them develop projects. And that might be one of the first clues I had once I had kids into how I hoped that my kids would be educated. Um, And in the process of having children and thinking about how they were going to grow up and um, kind of come of age in the world, I started exploring all different types of education models uh, and found Sudbury and kind of couldn't go back. And um, so that's where I come from. Okay. And um, this is Margaret, and I grew up in Asheville, North Carolina, and I got to, uh, in a very traditional education background, um, uh, my parents are both in education, so I went to actually a private elementary school and private um, high school where my parents taught, both taught. Um, and I came to Ohio to attend Oberlin College, um, with a, and I got a degree in English with a, you know, through the liberal arts. And I, but during my time at Oberlin, um, wanted thought I wanted to do something in the medical field. I wasn't quite sure what. Um, and after Oberlin, I went to um, Cleveland to work in a research lab where I um, sort of discovered I didn't want to be a PhD in anything um, and so I decided I wanted to do more clinical things and I discovered I met a doula and so I discovered the field of midwifery through her and I really it really spoke to me in terms of being a very natural process and um, so I went to midwifery school um, and became a certified nurse midwife And when I had kids, I did take a break from that, um, to stay home with them, um, and my kids started out in traditional school, public school, um, which was, um, you know, I just sort of thought that that was the way to go, but it wasn't until my third grader decided he was done with school that I really started to question things, um, and I did keep my kids home for two years. I have three children um, to be homeschooled. And I was all searching for alternatives. Um, and I discovered Sudbury, um, the model. And then I met Anastasia. And we talked about Sudbury together. And that's sort of how we got to where we are. Okay. The stars aligned, really. <laughs> okay.
0: So... So a couple questions out of here. It sounds like for both of you, the tipping point, which led you to the Sudbury model, was you having children and and trying to get an optimal educational experience. Uh, How did each of you come across the model, and how did you first implement it with your children? Um,
1: Interestingly enough, I actually came across the model long before I had kids. And I met a woman who had graduated from Sudbury Valley School, uh, the original school. Hmm. In fact, her father was one of the founding members of that school. Um, And she was attending graduate school at Brown University with my husband. Hmm. And she was young and vibrant and so self-possessed and just an incredible person, one of those rare people you meet. Um, And she used to tell us about her crazy school that she went to, and we would laugh and joke about four-year-olds voting and school meeting and just thought it was uh, a sort of a hoot, Um, but I never forgot about it and never forgot about her, Um, and then, you know, yes, you have children. I think you see this incredible, this incredible creativity, this incredible learning that's happening, and, you know, not only do you fall in love with them, but you fall in love with their capacities, the things that they're able to do, um, and you just, I don't know, I couldn't imagine um, anything that, that would sort of start to tamp that down. That was really what um, what started it for me, and so I uh, felt very nervous about sending them into public schools, and, um, you know, went back to my experience with the person who, who was so, you know, interesting and um, just continued thinking. And, yeah, that's – having met someone who had gone through the process and, and was so um, sort of compelling, an end result was definitely informative to me about the Sudbury model. Okay. Yeah, my – so my story about finding Sudbury is much more mundane. I think it was through a Google search. Um and it was—I think I just typed in "alternative education." And I think Sudbury, a video about Sudbury or an article about Sudbury Valley School came up, maybe four or five, you know, lines down. And I just read it, and once I read it, it just struck a chord, um, and it just felt so right. Kind of in the same way that midwifery felt right to me—that just, it just fit, mm-hmm. um, and it just rings really true. So I fell down the rabbit hole of reading everything I could about it, obviously and watching every video, there's lots if you if you mm-hmm. check it out and it's just so interesting and each thing I read or watched um, just built on the other about how um, how true it was and how much it felt like like it just fit like a piece of a puzzle that just fits.
0: Mm-hmm. So what I love, and 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 I'm I'm getting a strong sense here that you you discovered your purpose and you you took massive action to develop the school, which you are in operation of your first year. Share with the audience, how did you make the leap from getting your kids involved with Sudbury School to deciding, we're going to create our own? What, What did that look like?
1: we live in an area that has very little, um, very few alternatives to mm-hmm. the mainstream, uh, public school system. And so pretty much you're either in it or you're in Catholic school or you are homeschooled. Um, and for me, uh, the only way to get a Sudbury education, which is very different from sort of unschooling or homeschooling, um, very different. Uh, the only way to do that is to start a school. Mm-hmm. At least it was for us. Or to move to a place that um, had one, but that was not an option for my family, at least, and neither for Margaret. Mm-hmm. Um, so the our kids were introduced to Sudbury education with, you know, a little bit after us. We've been doing the reading and the planning, but we all have jumped in together. And um, we have other community members, too, um, but it's, um, it's something that we uh, did quite quickly
0: and um, urgently, really. Okay. So if you can give the audience a timeline, when when did you start the process and how did you work with the Sudbury School to, to develop your model? Um, Anastasia
1: and I first um, talked about the Sudbury model together probably in January of 2015 Um, and we made the leap to open the school probably in March or April Mm of 2015. Um, So we've been, we were brainstorming and working quite diligently on it since then. Um, We did contact Sudbury Valley school. Um, We purchased through them uh, what they sell as a Sudbury school startup kit uh, it just is comprised of a, a lot of their publications that they've put out. Um, they are available by phone. We've also gone to visit Sudbury Valley. Both um, Anastasia and I have visited them. Um, Anastasia has visited two schools, Sudbury schools in Florida, as well, to see what smaller schools would look like and newer schools in operation. Um, so there, there, Sudbury Valley is a resource in itself. Um, in terms of really knowing what the model looks like and how it's practiced. Um, I think each community, probably each school community looks different, but I think the backbone of each community is
0: the same, and it's based on that Framingham model. Okay. And I I was curious. I'm sorry, go ahead.
1: I was just going to say, knowing that, um, that they're out there and that, um, they've been doing it for 40 years, and that, um, you know, all of it, the, they've published a very large library of material, both sort of theoretical as well as um, concrete experiences and, you know, essays from um, people involved with it over the years. And they just, uh, it's one of those situations where the more you investigate and look into, their experiences and their, their writings, um, the more it makes sense and, and feels sort of just right and true with regards to kids and their own, you know, incredible capacities and the respect that they are due as, you know, young but full-fledged um, members of a society.
0: Right. So so your timeline was very quick because you, you opened up and... August, correct, or early September of last year?
1: That's right. We had a very fortunate situation. Um, We had access. I think the reason we even began talking about it was because certain things were um, available to us and in place. Firstly, a school building, a small residence on um, a really beautiful piece of land. And um, we had... uh, you know, the beginnings of a student body as well between us. So um, we hit the ground running with those two pieces in place and, um, and were able to open in a really short period of time, which isn't necessarily the case for a lot of people trying to start these schools. Some have to really work at it for a year or two or three even to get um, everything that they need in place because it isn't easy.
0: Can you talk about the property a little bit, how you acquired it, and and just describe it? Because as I'm reading it on your website and seeing the pictures, it it looks like an incredible place. It is. It's really incredible. I mean,
1: we're we're lucky to be in an incredible um, part of the country. It's so beautiful here. Um, It's a piece of property that uh, I owned, and it was intended to... um, to be something else, it was intended to be a place where my husband and I would build a home, um, and we scrapped that in favor of the school. So um, we uh, we we took the land, or we kept the land, in, and there was a small house on it that we were, you know, renting out. And we decided to just um, turn that around and make it the school. So that's that's how that came to be. It was something we had in hand, and it really made it. Really made it
0: possible, actually. Great, great. Now, before I start getting into the questions about what Sudbury is, how old are your kids right now that are in the school?
1: So there are four kids that are Anastasia's and mine.
0: Okay. Um,
1: and then there are four kids that come from other families in the community. Okay. Mm-hmm. So there are eight, eight students total. Okay. And three staff members. So the kids range in age from six to 16 right
0: now. Okay.
1: And I have a toddler as well who comes at the end of the day most days. She's sort of a a mascot member of the (laughs)
0: community. That's great. That's great. So I'm sure now the audience is wondering what Sudbury is. And as you alluded to, there's a lot, there's countless number of resources and research materials available online, but could you, could you describe what, what that is for the audience?
1: Sure, do our best. (laughs) Um, It begins um, with really, I mean, I think the founders of the model in, in 1968 We're looking around, and there was a lot of interest in free schools, and, you know, it was a different era, obviously. Um, But what they ended up coming back to, rather than sort of the, um, maybe the, like, (laughs) um, hippie-inspired kind of ethos of some of the free schools that may not have lasted, they really came back to the American Um, system of governance and the uh, Bill of Rights and the basic belief that all people have should have a voice and should have rights and should be respected and should, you know, those rights are inalienable. That's one of the things that's written about. That's very beautiful. And the school model takes that as its point of departure and, and believes that kids in school have that too. And so they should be complete and full members of whatever society they're a part of, is there to be um, educated to enter a society that is supposedly modeled on that and hopefully modeled on that. So it says, you know, kids have an rights. right. We create a safe environment where those rights are respected. We as a community uphold those rights. Um, we have our own preamble, which is the beginning of our rule book, and we have a series of rules that are... Um, to be followed by every member of the community. And if those rules are not followed, there's the judicial system and a peer, um, sort of a a jury of peers. There is no authority in the school other than the community and the school meeting, which is essentially the governing body. And so there's no principal, there's no end of the line, there's no adult saying yes or no um, to a child's behavior. There is the, the community that really creates the... The safe space. In the same token, there is no curriculum, and there is no um, sort of coercive uh, idea about what young people should do with their time or um, learn. And there's this very, very strong and deep belief that everyone is learning at all times, particularly young people with their their sort of boundless enthusiasm and energy. And if
0: you don't put a lid on that, you will create really, really amazing adults. When, and I'm sure it's no different than when a lot of people first hear about this method, they wonder okay, we know people learn, but how do you know that kids are learning the fundamental basics such as math, reading? How, how does that process develop through the Sudbury model?
1: Um, I think through the Sudbury model, um, there's a a deep trust in children mm-hmm. to learn what they need to learn at the point that they need to learn it. Which means that not all year olds will learn to read. It means that a child will learn to read when he or she is ready. To learn to read and has a need to learn to read, and in order you would, that happens because in order to join and be a productive member of society, which kids have an innate sense to do, um, they realize that reading is a part of what people do in our productive society, and so therefore they become motivated. For different reasons, each child has a different reason, right? And, but they all, all end up as readers. So at 14, you, you wouldn't know which kids started to read at five and which kids started to read at 12. Um, and I think you could make the same argument for the other things that we think of as school requirements, you know, academic skills. But I think another departure from first the Sudbury model is that it does not value math over music
0: mm-hmm.
1: or music over art. Um, so each activity that a child chooses is valued equally, rather than more weight placed on traditional academic subjects, which I think is is just what, what we've come to believe as the pinnacle, but we question that. And mm-hmm. I think the Sudbury model questions that as well. I always like to think of it as um, as the context for learning rather than the content of learning. Hmm. So rather than choosing and trying to devise the best subject matter for a student or for a young person, you're trying to devise the best um, sort of environment for uh, learning in all of its capacities. I mean, when, as adults, we don't have set content that we set out to learn, but we're learning at all times and interested and pursuing. You know, if if we remain curious, we're pursuing things all the time, and um, and it's that innate capacity that we don't want to stifle, or that separate model is hoping to just really. Embed deeply in the kind of the character of the kid, and also, you know, a moral compass, like what's right and what's wrong. And when you're kind of coerced into learning certain things, and told that perhaps what you would like to do all day isn't quite right, which is, or that your way of learning isn't quite right, or that your way of kind of being in your body isn't quite right because you're fidgety or whatever, um, those things get, you know, that becomes the context in which learning you know, is supposed to happen. And that's really, you know, in my mind, that's very destructive to a young person. I think um, I will take context over content any day because as soon as my child wants to learn something, I know they will be able to learn it because that's what they know how to do. Mm -hmm.
0: Is it a fair statement, and um, it's a statement slash question, is it a fair statement that you have to or how do you put in front of people from an environmental standpoint? Now, I know there's 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 a there's not the structure and such, but you still have to create an environment where things are put in front of a child so they could potentially make the choice on whether they want to learn more about it or not. What are the ways you go about doing that? Exposure question. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. yeah. Um, It's it's a big one, right? Because um, people—that's when we get asked quite a bit.
0: Sure.
1: Um, We asked ourselves it quite a bit when we were when we were trying to you know to figure it all out ourselves. We did. Um, and I think we answer it in different ways as well. Yeah. Um, because my my take on exposure is that it's no different for children than it is for adults. And so you're exposed to things all the time, Mm -hmm. just in normal daily life. And you're exposed to things through community members, through friends, which is the same for, and for the kids here, you know, each one comes from a different background. They meet at the school. They share those backgrounds in a, you know, Various ways, a bunch through conversation, a bunch through play. Um, so the exposure happens through them and through us, just in in life. Um, so I'm not. I, I I see what you mean. I mean, we ha- we did make a a general offering at the beginning of the school year, and that's we filled our shelves with books. Mm-hmm. We decided to get a piano, you know, not knowing that anyone would play it, but we thought, you know, we'll put those things in. So we made a general offering to fill the school with things, Mm -hmm. but we didn't have an agenda behind it. So we didn't pick books that we thought, well, this will be a good, you know, the the bookshelves are a mishmash of books from, you know, gathered from all corners. Um, So... There is no agenda in terms of we put physics books on the table and hope they look at them. That's not that's not what we were thinking. And that's mm-hmm. not what we hope happens. Mm-hmm. I, f- I feel like adults pursue things that they become interested in because of a they see, you know they see or hear from it from a myriad of places, and we don't question how adults are exposed. But why do we question why children are exposed or how they're exposed or if they're exposed enough?
0: Right right?
1: And, yeah, and the exposure, again, I think comes back to context. I mean, they are exposed to an incredibly fair environment. They're exposed to a judicial or a, a sort of quote-unquote justice system that is transparent and comprehensible to them, and they are the, the ones um, participating in it. So, you know, if you think of what kids are exposed to in um, in a school where things are decided only by adults, they're exposed to... A very strange and potentially unfair feeling um, situation, day in and day out. And so, you know, it, it, I think that question of exposure cuts both ways. Um, and you have, I think, as a society, we need to question what we are valuing and how, you know, and how the the infrastructure of our education system is valuing certain things. I mean, we essentially, you know, it's been said that the current system um, talks a good game about bullying right? It says don't bully, don't bully don't bully but it bullies kids because Mm -hmm. it says you should learn this and you know if you do things the way we don't think you should do them you shall be you know essentially coerced into doing them a different way and so it doesn't maybe um, it doesn't maybe look or, or feel like bullying the way we think of playground bullying but there is if you really follow it to a philosophical conclusion, it is coercive and um, entirely, you know, putting the child at the whim of another person. So, you know, that's the that's the sort of exposure question too for me is what um, what kind of environment are we exposing them to, rather than what kind, you know, what kind of learning environment, what kind of society are we exposing them to? Um, How are we preparing them to enter um, our, you know, our culture and our democracy um, and our
0: justice system? Right. Can you speak to the role of adults? Because you've kind of touched on already, it's vastly different than what is in the traditional classroom setting.
1: It is, yeah. yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because we have older kids. And we have kids who are very used to that that setting. Even even a kindergartner who's here is was confused at the idea of not having a principal, and in fact chafed against it because their experience is: well, if you don't have someone telling the other kids that are bugging me what to do or to stop bugging me, what you know, how am I gonna how am I gonna feel okay? How am I, how am I gonna feel safe? And they really in the beginning actually craved it. Um, and so we're in the process of trying to unpack some of that stuff and trying to disengage from an authoritarian kind of basic model of kid-to-adult relationship. And it takes a long time. I don't think we're quite even there yet. I think we're really learning, you know, ourselves how to do it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but it's so, it's so neat. It's like the, you know, it's, it's like being an adult
0: Getting a Sunday education, just like it is being a kid getting a right. education, right. I feel very fortunate. Right, and you mentioned—I think you said—you have eight kids, right? Currently, and right. yeah. So potentially, you could have kids every day that come in that go at some point in the day. They're all together doing doing something, or they could go in eight different directions. And it seems to me. And, and maybe there's a different term for it, but the adult role is very much one of facilitation and coaching where you're, just, you're kind of going around, observing, and maybe you're there for help if you're asked, but it's very hands-off most of the time. Is that fair to say?
1: Yeah, I would say it's very fair to say. I mean, we um, come to school. We do a lot of the maintenance that the school needs in terms of, you know, just, the nitty-gritty, like the cleaning, but we also, um, you know, trying to market the school and do admissions work, so we have that on our plate, but we also do, um, you know, we try to model um, what learning is for us, and, you know, so we're just the we're just members of the community who are pursuing our own interests, too as much as we have time for. And then, of course, yes, if a student needed help or wanted help or or anything, then
0: we would lend our hand at that too. So so another component I find so fascinating because there's such a value in it is, and you've touched on this too, the older kids are in a lot of ways doing teaching of the younger kids, but the younger kids are also – doing the same for older kids that maybe didn't experience that when they were that age or, or it's, it's new to their experience. Can you talk about how valuable that is in in their development?
1: It's been one of the most, um, just heartwarming and really beautiful things. Honestly, I, I, um, uh, the, the kids come into and out of, you know, connection over the, over the weeks. They're, they're, amazing um, friendships that, that bloom for a period that you would never have expected to bloom, you know, a 10-year-old boy and a 13-year-old girl, you know, just both going to the creek, sharing the love of finding um, the, the mud puppies or whatever, you know, and then and then going their separate ways again into different activities. And um, the, the just the sort of fluidness um, across age and seeing how Beautifully, um, the young kids and the old kids connect with each other. It's, it's just amazing. I mean, the younger ones probably have this exuberance and silliness and and just completely out of the box thinking. That's a little bit mind blowing, probably for some of the older kids. And the older kids have a generosity of spirit and a uh, and a kind of kindness and a, and a sort of discipline, maybe, that the younger kids are. Able to sort of watch and sit next to and, and you know, focus on with, that, with the, I mean, you, know, you just see them really, really reaching different places than I think they would have if they'd only been with kids their own age, you know, and, and all been sort of stuck in the same developmental um, rut and not really able to kind of lead laterally to a younger place or an older place you know,
0: throughout the course of the day. It's just, it's great. It's just great. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Whether you call it the establishment or not, how, what what's the view of the establishment to the Sudbury School model? And did did you have to jump through a lot of hoops, paperwork, bureaucracy to, to get your school going? Or is it pretty much disconnected from from that part in the in the state requirements, um, our school is fortunate to be in Ohio.
1: There is a provision in the Ohio code um, that allows for schools with deeply held beliefs to operate. <coughs> excuse me, without any um, tax or you know any kind of support from the state, but free of also the requirements. There, there the simple requirements are a certain level of education of the. Um, the people called teachers, and then um, a certain number of subjects being available to students, and all of that is met by the Sudbury model. So we operate quite um, comfortably within that code and that that um, sort of legal framework. Other states have it much more have much more challenging time, and what's very interesting is in the international community of Sudbury schools, there's schools that have been trying for years to find footing within, um, the, you know, some of the more, um, like in Europe particularly, some of those government governments have a really, really tough time and and they, you know, the government is very involved in standards and don't, um, just it doesn't compute, you know, the the cyber model and that idea of context over content does not, um... Does not make sense, and they have a very difficult time. The U.S. is a little more, um, you know, we believe in in a, a bit of rugged individualism, and so there's that <laughs> there's that space in the in the way that the um, the states sort of operate. But again, states
0: differ one mm-hmm. to the next. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know if you've gone to conferences or not, or I'm sure you certainly networked with people that are operating schools elsewhere. What's been? I can only imagine in this model the, the positive impact of the internet and the ability to access resources and experts and masters in whatever people want to learn about. What's what's been the impact from from the time it started in the late '60s? to the advent of the Internet and and the accessibility of information.
1: Yeah, I think it's only been a positive one because, um, you know, you go back to that exposure issue and Mm -hmm. you can, at at the tip of your fingers now and in the pocket of your jeans, you can access information that you could have only dreamed about, you know, in 1968 In, in, you know, 10 seconds or less. It's pretty amazing. And the kids... Know that I mean, maybe not know that to that extent, but they know they can access information whenever they want it, mm-hmm. um, and volumes of it. You know, it's as if you're standing in a university library. I mean, you're, it's it's incredible what what they can access. Um, so, yeah, I think it, it's probably unfathomable to the to the founders of uh, Sudbury Valley School in 1968 that mm-hmm. what the internet would do. But I think it's um, I don't know. I, I just think it adds to it adds to the ease of what they're doing, and it opens their doors even wider. I think, mm-hmm. um, absolutely, yeah. It also helps us. I mean, it, the model itself. You know, it, they, the founders of the Sudbury Valley School in Massachusetts worked, you know, so hard over the first twenty, thirty years of their own existence, trying to publish and document and to. Write um, as clearly as they could about what the model meant and was was doing and was actually achieving, and it's very hard to get that information out, you know. But now, my goodness, I mean, you know, within a, within a year, we knew um, an incredible amount about the model and about their experience, and that was because of our connectivity. And there's there's really great, you know, online um, online forums of staff members discussing. All the ups and downs and ins and outs and issues that attend good that att- that schools, you know, deal with and um, and really support each other and problem solve together. And so you're, you, you may be at school in the middle of uh, rural Ohio, but you really feel the kind of national and international community of others who believe in this and are, are um, just working as hard as they can to make it work for their, for their students.
0: Okay. Uh- as someone who personally is involved in recreation, uh, believes strongly in physical education and wellness, fair to say kids, kids in the Sudbury school get a lot of physical activity and it certainly helps their development?
1: Absolutely. Yes. A resounding Yes. <laughs> Yeah, the connect. I mean, the the kids getting a really clear um, internal. You know, they know when to move and when to sit. I mean, they they are able to make all those choices for themselves, and um, and they they move. You know, it's just, it's it's really it's really great. It's really beautiful to see and to see how much they um, how much they gain from that kind of you know that kind of. Uh, Bodily
0: um, freedom. freedom. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that's, right. I'm sure you've both experienced this when your when your kids are interacting with children that are involved in the traditional school setting. What what differences are so apparent to you when, when you see those interactions? I had one
1: experience recently that was. Um, that was telling for me. I mean, my child is six and she plays all day, um, in an incredibly focused and, uh, just all encompassing kind of a way. She, to to her now playing is not something you do, you know, for an hour and then stop (laughs) to her. It's just her, her whole existence. And, um, She's maintained some friendships from her one year in the kindergarten, um, and it, you know that there was a play date recently, and it was um, it was so short; it was two hours, and I was kind of astounded. I was like, "What are they going to get done? What are they going to be able to get to in two hours?" That seems like nothing, and um, and it was just a really. I realized I changed my sense of. Of what play means, and, and she had too, and she just seems kind of um, out of it when I picked her up. It didn't, it wasn't the kind of engrossing, deeply thoughtful, deeply exciting, um, kind of overwhelming type of, of of play that she participates in here at school. It was just a very different uh, kind of an experience. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I can just speak to that because my daughter, who is eight, is the only one of my children who's never been to school, and I feel like there's a, a fundamental difference in the way she views herself hmm. um, in the world than the way my boys, who are 12 and 15, um, view themselves. They went to school till third grade and sixth grade, respectively, and so um, it's. I think she's just a, a, a much different person for having never gone to school. Um, and it's hard to put my hard to put it into words, um, but she, I think she just has a different assuredness of herself, a different view of herself, um, and it just comes through in the way she um, interacts with people, um, adults, and people of all ages. She just doesn't she doesn't shy away from any sort of interaction. Um, because people are different ages or it's a new environment she sort of um, feels okay to explore mm-hmm.
0: uh, A common complaint that is heard about traditional schools is that parents aren't able to be involved. There's a lot of barriers and a lot of walls set up to to restrict talking about content and, and, and those kind of things. In the Sudbury school, and in your experience, how involved are you with the parents of your students?
1: It's an interesting thing with Sudbury because one of the things you actually have to ask the parents to do is to just utterly and completely trust the kids. Mm -hmm. Um, The the sort of one of the kind of um, downfalls of uh, this education is a situation where. The kid is at Sudbury School, um, but that the parent isn't completely uh, on board, or is a little nervous, or is making subtle hints to the child that there are things they should also be doing, mm-hmm. and really sort of sending a mixed message. Because the parent relationship is obviously the most important one in that child's life, um, and if there is a if there's a trusting environment in one place and a kind of half trusting or un Unconvinced environment elsewhere, um, it can be very, very harmful or very, very difficult for that person to know what's right and mm-hmm. to believe, you know, what's right and what's right. And so, um, that idea of parental involvement is tricky because we are very open to and, and connected to all the parents of the kids at our school. They're our friends, and they're we, we're so um, happy that they're. Sending their kids here, and we talk a lot about it. But one of the things we never do is talk to the parents without the child there. Um, it's uh, you know, for us, it's uh, most important that the relationship, the primary relationship, is with the kid, um, the student, and the parents are there as supporting members of the community. So, mm-hmm. um, so it you know, it doesn't. It's it's uh, it's really their involvement really needs to be not at the level of what's my kid doing? It's at the level of my kid is doing what they want to do, and, and I believe in that. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so I think you're also alluding to, you know, are the parents, this is a hard one, are the parents welcome to, to come to school and, you know, volunteer at school and things? And they're it's, it's interesting because they're not, mm-hmm. because we don't want that hanging over the kids. And it's a weird, that's an interesting thing, right? We want their support, but we understand that the kids need time in the community by themselves with no judgment. Um, And, you know, parents can't help but, and I think kids can't help but see their parents as those people that might, you know, be judging or that's a hard one to say, and then of course Anastasia and I are in the very complex situation of being parents to <laughs> kids, students and such at the, our school. So we walk that fine line. If there's a Sudbury school that you know if we could send our kids to, I'd be happy to do it. But <laughs> um, uh, unfortunately, we're in that in a very strange position, and but we realize that and remind ourselves of that every single mm-hmm. day. Yeah. And the other thing we have is the advantage of being here 24-7. So we're sort of like part of the atmosphere of the school. And I think if a parent came in and was only here for a few minutes or if you're for an hour or two now and then, it would be <clears throat> much more difficult to see the um, the intensity that's actually um, at work in a school. It's, it's not something you can necessarily glean just being here for for an hour or two, you have to really understand it as this slow burn, as a really long um, and and kind of deep process. Mm-hmm. That being said, I think if a parent was a resource for a student that wanted, you know, to learn something that a parent had great knowledge of, or you know, we would tap those resources if they were parents.
0: Mm-hmm. Not you know, okay, definitely. So I'm sure. I'm sure people that are, are going to be listening to the show are going to be asking the question, and you haven't experienced it yet being in your first year of operation, but what does the research say about when people become adults? How, how fulfilled and successful are they personally, professionally, whether they end up going to college and then a career, choosing a vocation or a trade, entrepreneur, business? What does the research say? About the kids that, that that go into adulthood.
1: It's uh, yeah, it's a it's a really it's a big question, a million dollar question, and and the Sudbury Valley School has done an amazing job over their their years of trying to answer that question through publications that are um, as sort of nuanced and sensitive to the the definition of success that the Sudbury school is really um, kind of gearing itself towards. So, you know, you can look at the numbers and say, oh, wow, actually, I think it's close to 80% go on to, for, you know, secondary education. And that might warm certain people's hearts very, <laughs> you know. Um, but what they're really actually trying to pin down is, and I think you asked the question very sensitively, is, you know, well, what is the... Um, real outcome of this it's not did you get into college but it's um, did you navigate you know adulthood friendships marriage mm-hmm. parenthood all of the intense experiences of life with you know with uh, hopefully composure and joy and um, and dignity and did you communi- you know contribute to your community and do, do you find satisfaction in your in your life and They've they've one or two publications that um, really try to tackle that. But, of course, it's an incredibly difficult thing to study. Um, Mm -hmm. And um, the books that I've read really point towards um, a resounding, yes, a resounding um, success rate, I would say. Um, And the anecdotal evidence of the staff members from other schools also point to that. And what they find is students that are incredibly entrepreneurial and have really strong moral compass and have a, a, a sense of what is right and what is wrong and, um, and a real engagement with their communities when they go out into the world and find it necessary
0: to be involved in, in their community. Yeah. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Sure. So you're in your first year of operation. Uh, I'm sure you didn't. You didn't view this as a as a short term thing. What, what's your vision uh-huh. of the future in for Kokosing Valley School?
1: Oh, it would be so great if our school could grow and um, and become more accepted in our community. If we could, um, you know, develop a student body that is. This, um, Sort of large and as vibrant and as diverse as some of the, the older schools that are that are out there like Sudbury Valley and Hudson Valley school and some of the other really just uh, beautiful communities that we've witnessed um, and that we could you know be a true and lasting alternative for this area I think that the area needs that it. Um, it doesn't it doesn't have a much as an alternative, other than as we said, homeschooling, and um, we would just love to grow this model and and make it really sustainable and again accepted and and, and sort of embraced.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Challenging, though.
0: It's very sure. challenging. Sure, sure. And for the audience, can you tell a little bit about your? I can't remember if on your website you called it an information session or an open house that you're having tonight.
1: Yeah, uh, we are having an information session at the Mount Vernon Public Library
0: um, Mm -hmm.
1: tonight, uh, the 28th, from 5 to 6 p.m. And we'll just be presenting the model and and answering any questions for prospective parents, hopefully that are that are you know thinking about an alternative. we've done that this. this is sort of our, our main marketing tool to try to recruit students and families into the, um, into the school and um, help answer these very questions that you were asking here. And, um, and also, you know, this will be the first time we do this where we've had a, a, you know, half a year under our belt and know a lot more about the model actually. So
0: mm-hmm.
1: we'll have an information session tonight and probably several more through the spring.
0: Uh, With scout without getting into specifics of tuition and et cetera, does financing for parents, does it have to come strictly out of pocket for Sudbury schools? Are they able to take part in voucher programs, scholarships? For families that are looking and have an interest in this, what, what are ways that they can swing it financially? That's a good question.
1: Um, because of the... The model itself differs so much from traditional schools. I don't know of any Sudbury model school that um, is anything but a private school because of the way it has to operate. Um, otherwise, they're you know sacrificing their ideals to get, which is hard. I mean, that's one of our toughest. Mm-hmm. Um, problems is we want to make it accessible to absolutely everybody who wants this model for their kids or their self. So we purposely set our tuition um, very low. It's at $3,000 a year, which is pretty low for a private school anywhere, I would think. Um, And if you're a sibling in the same family, the tuition is cut in half, so if you're a second. Second like student from the same family, so we that's our that's the way we have looked to it. We'll we'll you know we'll take as little tuition as we possibly can in order to you know pay the rents on the building and pay the utility bills. But um, as far as getting money like scholarships and things elsewhere, we don't have those funds right now to offer scholarships to people, and I'm not sure. Uh, is there... Yeah, I think that the larger schools may um, may begin to, and, and schools also that are in areas that are um, maybe a little more affluent than, than ours. We have, we are very conscious of um, that, you know, the the community that we're in and what we're, you know, what we're up against in terms of families wanting to do this but not being able to. Um, at the same time, I think. Um, you know, we have to we have to try to be sustainable and and create something where we're not going to be you know out on a limb in two or three years and really not not able to um, to you know sustain the school. So it's always a balance. One of the one of the fundamental things that the original school did was pin their tuition to the um, the local expenditures per student um, by the school board. So they really. I mean, every single Sudbury school, the tuition is really significantly lower than other tui- you know, other private schools in the area, and because the model allows for that in many ways, um, and also is is lower than what state governments are paying um, into the sort of the pot for the public school funding, um, and we are at certainly much lower than than that, and so the, the idea there is, you know. Listen. This model is sustainable. It's affordable to school district. Make this work, um, but um, until you've really, until you've really, you know, moved the 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 baseline ground of, of what um, people think school should be, it's going to be very difficult for government and state to support this, this education model.
0: Okay. Okay. How can the audience find out more about Cacosing Valley School?
1: We have a website and a Facebook page. Um, so website is www.kokosing, K-O-K-O-S-I-N-G, Valley School, all one word, dot .org. And um, find us then on Facebook. We've got a link there. And um, check out, we post fairly regular um, articles and things we find interesting um, in the mainstream press just about education and kids and um, and sometimes specific to Sudbury, but sometimes just um, about, you know, what it is to be growing up and being educated in, in the conventional system.
0: Okay. And we'll put those links in the show notes. Is there, I know, I know there's a number of resources. Is there a single book or website you recommend for people to learn about the Sudbury model in general?
1: Well, I think, um, you know, I would I, I would start where I started, which is at the Sudbury Valley School's website. Um, just, I, I don't know the name, the actual link to their website, but um, okay. if you Google Sudbury Valley School in Framingham, Massachusetts, you'll find it in the Harpy. And they have a lot of materials, and it really is a great sort of point of departure. They um, have a great blog, lots of great essays on their blog about their experiences. You can find the list of their publications there and by them. Um, And, you know, there you'll find the study that I mentioned regarding outcomes, you know, of their graduates. You'll find their original text called Free at Last, um, which is a beautiful um, account of the early years of the the Sudbury Valley School. Um,
0: And, you know, I think they've got upwards of 40 publications now. Terrific. Terrific. Well... I'm gonna sign off here. If you could hold the line, is there anything additional you would like to say to the audience? No, it's been a pleasure
1: talking to you and thanks for your curiosity and for listening. Yes, well, thanks,
0: Rob. Likewise, and, and for people that are looking for something different, this is a option that's very intriguing, just like homeschool, unschooling. There's a lot of different alternatives available for people and it's, it's neat that there are choices, and hopefully those choices do become more accepted in the mainstream because it seems like the outcomes are significantly positive. Absolutely. Thank you for tuning in to the Outstanding Ohio Show. This was Episode 41 with Anastasia Congdon and Margaret Lewis from the Kikosing Valley School. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.